Well, I am overcome. That is the song that we needed to begin this year with, David, as individuals, as a church. It is the perfect message for the message tonight, and it is the perfect theme for your life and for our church in 2014. From my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. Well, we're all keenly aware that this past Wednesday propelled us into a new calendar year. So, beginning this month of January, we must get used to writing 2014 on our letters, on our cards, on our forms, on our checks. Also effective this weekend, we have adjusted our assembly times on Sundays to 9 and 1045 as we move from four weekend worship services to five services in two separate venues. And if you want to sneak a peek at the chapel before you leave tonight, it would be a good thing. We're not done in there. It's, by the middle of February, going to be something else and a very exciting development. Today we're launching a new series of messages taken from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eyewitness accounts of the last week in the life of Jesus. Originally, I wanted to title this present series, The Greatest Week in Human History, (laughs) because I believe that it was the greatest week in human history. But instead, I have abbreviated the title of the series, and we're simply calling it The Week, The Week. So between now and Easter Sunday, we'll spend 16 weeks on the events that took place during the last week in the life of Jesus on earth. Now, the last week of Jesus' life began with His triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, and Patrick read about it from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. It's also reported in Matthew and in Luke in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, written five centuries before it actually happened. See? See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey. It dawned on me this week that as a church, we're actually standing at the intersection of all three of Jesus' triumphal entries. Think about it. He made a triumphal entry in Bethlehem in a manger when He came as the Son of Man, God incarnate on Christmas, and we just finished celebrating Christmas. And then He came as the Messiah, the Savior, through the city gates of Jerusalem to give His life on Calvary's cross to take away your sins and mine. And that's where we're living today. And then His third triumphal entry as King of kings and Lord of lords in the clouds with great glory, and every eye shall see Him at the end of time. And just last week, we finished the series, Until I Come Again. All three of these are triumphal entries indeed. And I think it's kind of neat that the timing is such that we're living as a congregation right where these three historic events, these three triumphal entries converge. Okay, back to this weekend and our focus on the first event of 
the week. Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem to be offered up as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is in total control of everything that's going on. He is intentional. Entering the holy city during the Passover, the religious leaders would be present. The city would be overrun with people everywhere. And he came into Jerusalem, Jerusalem deliberately riding on a donkey. He wanted all to see his entry into the city as a humble savior, as a peacetime king. And now Jesus' identity and ministry, they are out in the open for all to see. Soon they're going to know that the one who entered the city on a donkey had also risen from the dead and was Lord of all. And what took place at the entrance to the city that day was uninhibited worship by a great multitude of people. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 13. They took branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. And in those days, palm branches were often used to pay homage, to celebrate the victory of a king. Now, I know that some people doubt the sincerity of those who lined the way into the city that day. But it's really an argument from silence to say that those who welcomed him with praise that day are the same ones who would later cry out, crucify him. There were actually tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem that week. And so I think the likelihood that the triumphal entry crowd and the crucifixion crowd were pretty much two separate crowds. That's much more logical to me. So what's the application? What is the primary practical takeaway for us from this passage? Here is my one-point <laughs> sermon tonight. Here's my singular big idea. In today's vernacular, we must live our lives for an audience of one. Jesus is the center. From my heart to the heavens, He is the center. As Rick Warren writes in the first four words of his international bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life, it's not about you. In other words, the one you live for must not be you. Your purpose in life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your own peace of mind, your own happiness. It's far greater than your family, than your career, your dreams and ambitions. The self-centered life does not work because it starts in the wrong place. It asks, what do I want to be? What do I want to do with my life? What are my goals for the future? You're not going to discover your life's significance by looking within yourself. It's just not there. And if they were honest, those who have pursued fulfillment through hedonism and intellectualism and materialism would testify to the truth of what I'm saying. It's guaranteed regret if you make yourself the center of your own little universe, surrounding yourself with 
fast crowds and bright lights and good times, living for the bigger and the better and the newer, living to see your name in the headlines or on a trophy or on a book cover or up in lights just does not satisfy the deep, innate longing that we all have for intimacy with God. In John chapter 12, verse 12, a great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. The multitude dropped what they were doing. They made Jesus, the worship of Jesus, their priority. All other activities were secondary to the adulation they positioned themselves to offer him as they shouted praise, as they waved palm branches, as they spread their garments in the way. And may each of us have our faces in that crowd outside the city. May we be a people who want to love him above all others and above all else. May we be a people who want to live our lives for an audience of one. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 in the message. Beautiful passage. It is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, He had His eye on us, had designs for us, on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose He's working out in everything and everyone. One day Jesus asked His disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And of course they answered with a lot of different opinions. And Jesus said, what about you? What about you, He asked. Who do, who do you say that I am? And that's the question, friends. That is the question. Do you know why this passage is in here? So we can identify with it. Oh, there are a lot of opinions out there today circulating about who Jesus is and why He came and what He did while He was here. He wants to know, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And if you answer with Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, then it means that for you, He is who He said He was. And the most important thing in your life is knowing Him, loving Him, serving Him. Other voices from the past, other voices in our generation may be saying other things about Jesus. So what? Who do you say that He is? We must live for an audience of one, Jesus Christ. Some loved Him. Some hated him. That did not change who he was or how he lived. Some wanted him to be an earthly ruler. Some wanted him to be a perpetual provider. Once after he miraculously fed multitudes, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Some accused him of being aligned with Satan. But public opinion did not change who he was or how he lived. And friends, as Christians, some will love us. Some will despise us. Some will embrace us. Some will reject us. It doesn't change who we are. It doesn't change how we live. We must live for an audience of one. And if we live for an audience of one, 
will personally experience what is described in Revelation 4, 1 and 2, verse 11. John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who is seated on the throne will receive our worship as we say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created, and have their being. We were created by him and for him. We have our very being because of him. He is the audience of one for whom we must live. But living for an audience of one requires a decision from each one of us. It's a decision made both initially and perpetually. And there are some here tonight for whom it would be a first-time decision if you would come to Christ tonight. For most of us, it is a commitment that we regularly renew both in our private worship and in our public worship. Now, there were several groups in the multitude that waited for Jesus outside of Jerusalem on that day of triumphal entry. And these groups represent our decision options. There were, first of all, the critics. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. When he, that is Jesus, came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, the religious leaders hated Jesus. They saw him as a threat. They saw the love that people had for Jesus. They knew they were losing their influence, and their frustration clearly shows in their words in John chapter 12, verse 19. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They did not say it the way we would have said it. They were frustrated. They were angry. They wanted him dead, gone, forgotten. Not much has changed in over 20 centuries. The world today is full of critics of Jesus. Some foolish deny, foolishly deny that He even existed, or they deny that He is God, or they deny that He is the only way to heaven. The real Jesus is a threat now, today, just like He was then. So, Muslim persecution of Christians is extreme, and it is deadly in some places in this world. And Hindu extremists beat and kill Christ followers in some locations. And Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons demean Jesus by denying His deity. And secularists? Secularists are angered by the exclusivity of Jesus, the claim that He is the only way to know God, the only way to heaven. They're resistant, even disgusted by the devotion of Christians, and they are the loudest voices denying the faith of our founding fathers. They are the loudest voices distorting the intent of the Constitution. They are the loudest voices dispelling all Christian influence from our American way of life today the secularists. 
And then there are the syncretistic people. They're frustrated by the authority of Jesus. They have their own religious views based on what they have experienced or what they feel or what they think. They say, no one has the right to tell me what to believe or how to live. Leave me alone, Jesus. I will believe what I want to believe. I'll live the way I choose to live. And just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they get angry when they're confronted with the real Jesus. There were critics then. There are critics now. They want Jesus and his disciples silenced. Well, others present that day were the curious. John chapter 12, verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, that is, he called Lazarus from the tomb. He raised Lazarus from the dead just a few days before. And so, when they heard that he had given this miraculous sign, they went out to meet him. They'd heard the word of mouth, reports of the miracles that Jesus had performed. So when they learned that Lazarus had been raised from the dead outside the town just a few days before, they showed up for a glimpse of Jesus. They thought it would be a good, good show, like the people in New York City when the ball dropped on New Year's Eve last week, they didn't want to miss out. Now, curiosity can be a good place to start when it comes to faith, but it's not a good place to stay. Fifteen years ago, curiosity took my older brother to a play called The Book. It was performed in a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. In the climactic moment of the drama, the Satan character came out front for a final monologue expressing frustration about the souls that had been saved and snatched away from him. But then he pointed outward to the audience and said, that's okay because I've still got you and I've still got you and I've still got you. And he pointed into the balcony where Conrad was seated. And the Holy Spirit used that moment to bring him under conviction and into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. So there were critics, and there were the curious, and then there was the crowd. It seemed that there was always a crowd around Jesus. But the crowd I'm talking about here is the many people present who had not been taught. They didn't really know Him. They didn't really care about Him. They just got swept up in the enthusiasm of others. They were ignorant in the sense of uninformed. They were ignorant of the identity of Jesus as God's Son. They were ignorant about the purpose of Jesus to save them from their sin. And this crowd was made up of two distinct groups. First, there were the willfully ignorant. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, the reason for the tears of Jesus is that many in the city had closed their eyes 
to the truth about him. They had willfully rejected the inner peace he offered. They refused to see it. They, they did not recognize that he was God coming to them. Perhaps you've heard, there are none so blind as those who will not see. That's, that's what I'm talking about here. When I talk about the willfully ignorant, I'm talking about those who will not see. They could have seen his salvation, but they would not. And it, it caused the face of Jesus to be coursed with tears. And again, this is still a source of grief to the Lord Jesus today, this group represents an awful lot of people in America today. Listen, access to the Bible and the church is everywhere. The truth about Jesus is on television, it's on radio, it's online, it's in churches, it's in books. But too many people, in spite of their easy access to information about Jesus, who He was, what He said, what He did, how anyone can have the hope of heaven in Him, they still won't make the effort to find out the truth. They're never going to be caught dead in the vineyard bookstore. And they're probably not going to go to the average church. Or they'll willfully resist because they know that it would change them from the inside out. And so they choose, they willfully elect to remain ignorant. When we planted a new church in Santa Clarita, California, we had a line on our connection card that read, I would like to hear a brief literate presentation of Jesus in the privacy of my own home. And there was a little box there they could check. And people would come and visit our church and they would check that box. And we followed up with teaching calls in the homes of many people in the valley. But there were also those who were not willing to check that box. They were not open to learn. And such people will continue to languish in the unbelieving crowd on the broad way that leads to destruction. But then there were others in the crowd that were not willfully ignorant. They were not willfully ignorant. They were the untaught ignorant. Matthew 21 verse 10 talks about them. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Apparently, there were people there for the Passover who had not heard of Jesus. They were unaware of what He had done. They couldn't go to the Internet. They couldn't access a website to find out what's going on in the world. Believe it or not, they didn't even have black and white TV back then. Today, these people would equate to those living in other cultures or those living among the unreached peoples of the world. And I suppose it's still possible here in the United States, especially for children being brought up in homes where the Bible is either forbidden or it is ignored, homes where spiritual counsel and prayer are not on the parents' agenda. And, of course, this is the reason why your Crossroads mission dollars are heavily invested in reaching unreached people groups. We have nine, we sponsor nine full-time new church planning evangelists in one of the most unreached areas of the entire world. And we're experiencing thousands of baptisms. It's why we have a strong emphasis on Bible teaching 
in our weekend children's ministry and on our Wednesday after school light company because we want to do something about the untaught ignorant. You see, these are not willfully ignorant people. It's not that they have access to the information and they don't want it. These are people who haven't heard, and they don't know how to find out about it. Romans 10 talks about them, verse 14. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? The untaught ignorant need us to either go or send. And the Lord is expecting us as the church to do one or the other, to go or to send, to help as many people as possible know Jesus, come to an understanding of the truth about God's love and God's grace. It's life-changing. Well, there's one more group in the multitude on the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and that's the group of which we want to be a part. (laughs) I would call them the core. Matthew 21, verse 9, the crowds that went ahead of Him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. These were called the followers of the way, the committed. And I would describe them as joyfully expectant. They were excited that day about Jesus coming into the city. They knew He was the one. And they proclaimed Him to be the long-awaited Messiah by their uninhibited praise. The praise they were offering Jesus identified Him as the Savior, the Messiah. They loved Him. They wanted to be where He was. In just a few years, many of these same people would literally take up their crosses and die as martyrs. They withheld nothing from Him. They helped birth the church on the day of Pentecost. They witnessed their faith. They preached with boldness, taking His truth to the world. These represent the Christians today who look to the future in His final triumphal entry, and we say, Come, Lord Jesus. We are excited to see You, to greet You. We welcome You. Those who long for His return, because He already reigns supreme in their hearts. That's what I'm talking about. Those who are living for an audience of one. So every person here tonight belongs to one of these groups. Where would you put yourself? Probably not with the hostile critics. What about the superficially curious? Has your involvement in church kind of been a fits and starts thing all your life? When's that going to change? How about 2014? How about this being a true new beginning for you? and all those you will influence. What about the willfully ignorant crowd? Probably not, but maybe. Maybe there's some here who just, you don't want to know any more than you know now, and you're not interested in going any deeper, any farther than you are today. Let Him take you higher, deeper. Let Him take you upward, forward in 2014. Or you're a part of the committed core, part of the critics, part of the curious, part of the willfully ignorant crowd, part of the 
committed core. And the core is not a closed group. That's the neat thing. It's not a closed group. <laughs> it's not a country club mentality. If, it, if it's that, it's not the church. The core is not a closed group. Jesus came to seek and save everyone. And as a church, we're passionate about outreach. We are here and near and far away. So in Christ and at crossroads, here's the way we say it. You're more than welcome. You are wanted. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father, we... Thank you that today, tonight, we could draw back the veil and experience the triumphal entry through the eyewitness accounts of Matthew and Luke and John. And Lord, we know what happened that day is just a foreshadowing of what's going to happen one day when Jesus makes his final triumphal entry and we we welcome him with shouts of praise joyful hearts and we thank you that he will welcome us into the new Jerusalem oh Lord your word is just so obviously true and so reliable and so trustworthy. We embrace it. We believe these eyewitness accounts. And we look forward to the day when we're in the picture. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Tonight, we want to invite you to meet us right down front here. Our pastors will be here to meet you as we worship. One last song. I invite you to come and join us as together in 2014 we live for an audience. <laughs>